This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Destinations International. Next up in the event calendar is MARCOM, the Marketing and Communications Summit, the preeminent gathering place for marketing, communications, and public relations professionals dedicating to helping destination organizations thrive. Get inspired, lift your creativity to a new level in some place that is truly elevated. Salt Lake City, February 27, 28, 29. Sign up to get notified as soon as registration opens in the events section at Destinations International. And now it's on to our show. Josiah Brown is the founder of the New York's Best Experiences brand and campaign. For over 20 years, Josiah has been involved in the work to win first-time visitors to New York State and then trade them around the state's 11 beautiful vacation regions. This work has earned him the nickname of the New York Sherpa. He won that badge from traveling over 800,000 miles by car extensively across New York State and 46 states of America. Josiah is the former chair of the New York State Tourism Industry Association, serving on that board for seven years. He's also a current member of the Destinations International Advocacy Committee. He is currently the president CEO of Famous Destination Marketing, Inc., which is named after his tourism marketing philosophy. This company serves as the umbrella company for New York's Best Experiences brand and his New York Sherpa consulting and branding clients. His hobbies include working, and driving to work, (laughs) but you'll catch him in his downtime trying to find a glass of bourbon that is slightly better than his last glass. And his life goal is to always be inspiring people forward. Josiah Brown, welcome to DMOU. It's so good to be here, Bill. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Absolutely. So if your last bourbon was better than your previous bourbon, so one bourbon guy to another, what's your current fave? My current fave is Hill Rock Distillery. It's in New York, okay. not far from our capital of Albany. It was the last distillery, from what I understand, it was the last distillery to be touched by the uh, magic hands of Dave Pickerel before his untimely passing. So he came out of Maker's Mark, and then he went to uh, Whistlepig and uh, Hill Rock. Uh-huh. So it's kind of a storied journey of how he got there, but uh, what they're doing up there is pretty extraordinary. I will look for it. I just got turned on by my friend and past DMO contributor, Jim Epperson of So In Tourism, to the Starlight Distillery in Southern Indiana. Amazing uh, setup, great tasting room. It's hard to find. And I think that they're kind of proud of the fact that they don't go with major chains, it you got to look for it. <laughs> it. And I found it in this really small town about 20 miles from where we live in a very small but a great bourbon collection liquor store. And uh, that's kind of where you're going to find Starlight around the country if you can. And I'm going to look for it. So that, that, that's mine. Although I, I got to say my go-to right now continues to be New Riff. Okay. And uh, especially so because last night, uh, Terry and I were out and uh, I discovered the new Riff gin, which I didn't know they made, and it was amazing. So I know we're crossing out of bourbon territory into gin territory, but that's, yeah, is what it is. So, hey, I got to say, yours was my favorite presentation at this year's annual convention of Destinations International. 
man, you don't pull punches. You say it like it is. And you are one of the new thought leaders in our sector. And I love the way you think. So first question, in that session, you came down hard on DMO pros that still rely on numbers and statistics to defend their work. First off, you say we shouldn't be playing defense in the first place. But more importantly, you say we should be selling our story rather than telling it. So for those that missed that session, share with us what you mean by this. I think Bill Geist saying that that's his favorite session from the conference. I think I can retire now. <laughs> well, you've got so much more to give, man. You really do. <laughs> I have to say at the top of the program how much I've appreciated uh, not only our relationship, but really just the mentorship that you've uh, given me over the last decade or so. I can't remember how long it is that we've known each other, but it's close to that. So, you know, for me, that session was born out of a lot of rooms that I have sat in waiting to speak. And I've had uh, lunch or dinner or a session with a destination marketer. And they're saying, you know, my destination is really not supporting us. We're having threats of cuts. They're not understanding the effect of tourism. They're not understanding the visitor economy. And we just have this great riff session and there's frustration. And I'm there speaking for either a project or um, just kind of give an update on the industry and sneakily put all of our talking points in there. And so I'm sitting there waiting and they're up there talking to their funders first. And sometimes uh, not really to their fault in a way, it's a training issue that I think fundamentally is that they kind of fumble the football. And I sit there and I go, well, hold on. Uh, one of the greatest quotes um, that I have built my career on is uh, Maya Angelou. It's, it's not what you said and it's not what you did. It's how they feel, right? And I'm getting that quote, but I think everybody pretty much knows that. How did they feel? And there's often times that I would see someone present and I would say, boy, I actually think they're a masterful destination manager and marketer, but perhaps not a good deliverer of this message. Mm -hmm. And that was really the proposal that I gave DI about annual convention was bringing a topic that was titled speaking, actually speaking, the art of speaking advocacy. What I, what I did to start, because a lot of times when we're presenting to our funders, and I did this early in my career, we would, I was in sales. And so you would kind of go in and you might be a little nervous. It's a large room. Maybe you're sitting at a table testifying and you kind of grab your sheet of the numbers or what your brass tacks or what you're selling are, and you start talking numbers. And so what I did in that session is I got up and I, for one whole minute, it was hard not to break character, but for the beginning of my talk, <laughs> I, for one whole minute, read the extraordinary numbers that have come out of New York State from 2009 to 2019 was a uh, will be one of the greatest arcs of growth based on state investment. And I read those numbers. And by the end of the minute, I almost couldn't bear it anymore because I had completely lost the room, Yeah, completely lost the room. And... Then I pop out and get back in character and I say, how did that feel, everybody? And that's really the philosophy I have of we have to stop thinking we just have to tell our story, but we have to sell it. And what does that mean? It means learning how to persuade someone that tourism matters, that the visitor economy matters. And the reason I come so hard on the numbers is that I think the numbers back up the emotional case. They're the logical reason that what we said at the beginning is factual. 
but that we have to come in ready to explain to our funders what a visitor economy is as opposed to just tourism businesses. Mm -hmm. We have to come in with the stories of the legacy businesses that are providing quality of place for our residents that are generational and legacy and enjoyed so much by the residents, but that would not be there without the visitor's dollar. And we have to really persuade them to realize that your restaurant being full on every Friday night in July and there being traffic every Friday and Saturday in July and August is not a sign of something wrong. It's actually a sign that something actually might be working and that we as an industry understand if it's jammed every Friday all year, that's a problem, but busy season is busy season. Those are the type of emotional stories to carry and to talk about how the hospitality industry is training America's youth. And so that all these young people who are getting those turnstile jobs and front desk of the hotel jobs, that's America's future workforce being trained. At the conclusion of that, then coming in to say, now I've built a great community story and why this matters to the residents, but actually let me show you the numbers and how we're actually performing some amazing financial things for our destination as well. And I kind of went hard on this as well as you alluded to, but I have a gripe with how the numbers are presented because I think that we are taking our numbers and at times we are cutting them in a way that's not even right. It's not factual, but it's actually hurtful. And let me explain that. I kind of talked in that presentation about the old, um, we saved every household $678. You've probably heard that yeah, right. everywhere. Oh, some people, everywhere I go, they put in their signature of their email, and I go, "Okay, this is a group of people who is approving hundreds of thousands, millions. Sometimes they're hearing presentations about billions, and you're going in front of a group, usually the legislators or the funders, the people that are controlling the purse strings. They don't fundamentally understand what we do, which is what we have to work on anyway." but they certainly aren't going to hear our millions and billions and hundreds of thousands in our presentation and have it be any different than the, the industrial development agency or the economic development agency or the developer that just came in front of them. So then we say, well, let's make this simple. And we, we take our sales tax collection from the visitor spend, we divide it by households and we come out with $678 and we say, every year we save households $678. And that just doesn't sound like a large number. Not anymore. We just took 80 million and we sliced it down into this tiny number. And I also don't think it's accurate. And what I mean by that is that when we say that the visitors saved the household $678, you're saving them that if you went away, they'd have to pay that. So if we just went away as an industry... You lose all the rateables for the hotels, the businesses, the restaurants, and you lose all those jobs. So more appropriately, if you've saved them 678, but if you go away and they have to pay five grand or 10 grand and they have to find employment for two people in their household now, then that's not really an accurate way to represent that we saved you that. We're probably saving you five to $10,000 but it just manifests as 678. So not to get so buried in the weeds, mm-hmm. what I kind of advocated was once you end with your numbers and you defend yourself with your numbers, how about saying 
the visitors, just the visitors to this destination brought $80 million of sales tax revenue that we can use for community programming and services that we would not have if we had not welcomed those people into our destination. $80 million. Yeah, rather than going the lack mentality, going for look what we can do now because. Exactly. Yeah. And I was just at uh, the Duchess Tourism, Malane's annual meeting mm -hmm. um, at Duchess Tourism, and she said another brilliant thing. She said, our visitors spend on average $1.9 million a day. And I was like, okay, now that's a big number. Mm -hmm. So coming back to those large numbers, but it's in many of these destinations, we know that the increasing challenge is that they sometimes don't even care about the numbers. So we have to come in with the emotional message of the youth employment and the legacy businesses and the generational businesses and the quality of place assets that our young people want to live around. So if visitors stop coming and all of the places that serve espresso and all of the places that serve avocado toast disappear, our young people will disappear as well. And so visitors equal quality of place, quality of place equals young people wanting to live here. And I know that these hooks work because I am also presenting to these funders. And in several cases, I have sat in testimony to a legislature as kind of the last bridge between whether they were going to cut tourism completely or not. And those were in super rural destinations. But for them, they didn't even care about the numbers anymore. And so I knew, don't even pull it out. You have to go in there and talk emotional resident community fabric of this place type of a message. And we never even talked about the numbers. Yeah. And there is that emotional thing that I think a lot of Americans and probably people all over the world during COVID began to realize that they had hospitality workers who were now unemployed or furloughed who lived down the street, who were their friends that they never identified them as part of that sector, but now realize I have friends who are hurting because of what's happening with the pandemic. And I don't know if that has transcended or, or continued to today. Can we reach back to that moment when we had that empathy for those people? Does that remain today where we say, if this economy goes south, your friends will hurt. I mean, if it's not you, it's going to be friends of yours who will be hurting. I don't know if that remains today. I'm seeing two sides of that. I am much more now defending strongly what a visitor economy is as opposed to a tourism economy, because a visitor economy means your neighbor who's the contractor for six months has been working on two short-term rentals renovating the bathrooms, uh, renovating the porch, mm -hmm. uh, changing the roof. When that contractor is on top of that roof, changing roof tiles, that contractor at that moment is working in the visitor economy. Mm -hmm. We understand this. Like we, in some ways, it's interesting because we have gotten so deep into this that sometimes it's going back to first grade math and we forget how to explain first grade math. I have, you know, uh, an 11 year old, a six year old and a six month old. And mm -hmm. oftentimes when I had to teach math and they didn't understand what dividing 
by two meant, you know, dividing it in half. They didn't understand that. And I'm like, oh boy, how do you actually get that simple again? We keep getting more and more advanced with the playbook that's coming out of DI. Every year, we are getting more and more and more messaging that I think many people in the industry have known for years. You know, I saw you speak on a lot of these topics in 2015 and 16. So mm. it's out there. But now the playbooks are being built and we're getting really good at speaking this. But it now has to go down to the desk of the person who is going to present to their funders and they have to come in and it's almost politician like they have to speak, they have to move the room, they have to bring you on a story arc, they have to end with their numbers. And that's where during that session, I probably spent too long on the message because I actually wanted to spend some time on just core public speaking skills of you know, how to craft emotional phrases and how to build a story arc and how to bring some emotion into that room. Because we, sometimes, it just might be we're the problem. When we want to rant about a destination, not embracing us, not understanding us, what happens if we haven't actually carried that water? So you focus a lot of your work on smaller, more rural destinations, which I think is fascinating. And you say that the future as younger generations are beginning to rethink where they want to live, that that is the future. At the same time, however, some of the smaller towns we see around the country are pushing back because they are sadly too unsophisticated to realize that visitors can actually save their town, your point of Friday nights being full. What's your message to small town leadership? Is it different than it is to municipal or mid to big city? leadership? The approach is very different. And the approach is really born from the reality that rural destinations, I think, have one of the greatest opportunities since maybe just post-World War II. When you look at economic development and what everybody traditionally thinks that means, that, you know, that they talk about that meaning winning a factory, right? Economic development for years meant winning industry and manufacturing. And everybody was trying to get their fair share of that. And so these economic development departments sprung up all over the country. And that's what they chased, manufacturing and industry. That era of growth that came from chasing that is now a bygone era in most of these rural destinations, that they pretty much are becoming post-industrial, post-agricultural destinations. And that's scary. But when you go to the legislators or the, the political bodies there, I call them the funding bodies for tourism, they are lost back in that mindset that they can bring agriculture and manufacturing back. And in some cases, you go maybe. Yeah. But what I really bring to them is the message that post-pandemic, young people are now choosing low crime clean air, clean water, spaced out living, smaller school districts, more than really ever in a few generations. In fact, in 2019, we were seeing that all of statistically, most of the young people wanted to go to urban centers. Yeah. That's where it was right. at. And COVID just not only pushed people back to the town they came from or a rural place. I live in a county the size of Rhode Island with a population of 35,000 people. I live about wow. as rural as you can get in the Catskill yep. Mountains of New York. And we added 100 children to our school district at the beginning of this year. 
which has not happened, I think, ever. So when I go to the one little espresso shop on the corner and sit there and have a coffee and I talk to some of these people, they were able to work remotely and now they want to live in a place that has those characteristics I talked about. So really to the rural groups, I'm saying you have one of the greatest opportunities to call young people back in history, but what they need is quality of place. Yeah. And if you started today, you couldn't in 20 years build quality of place yourself. But if you invite visitors, it goes back to that Moragast, it starts with a visit. Mm-hmm. If you invite visitors and you do it with discipline and you fight for now your new share, your new fair share of the opportunity of economic development, which is visitors, if you fight for your new share of that, you will have entrepreneurs coming out of the woodwork to build all of that quality of place for you. And that is exactly what happened in my town. I grew up in a much more, not urban, but suburban urban area of the lower Hudson Valley. And when I moved to the Catskills to be closer to my wife's family who raises horses, um, uh, she's involved with her father in raising uh, horses in the mountains here, I was panicking because there was nowhere to get a good cup of espresso. There was nowhere to get a good dinner. And during the pandemic, several entrepreneurs from Brooklyn came out of Brooklyn and bought here. First they visited, then they bought a house, then they started a business. And now I have incredible cafes and restaurants, Brooklyn level, that I can take visitors and the quality of life for me has soared. So that's me going to these rural destinations. I just wrapped up a project with a rural destination and I said, this is your new manufacturing. This is your new agriculture. And by the way, when visitor economies start to grow, they actually bring manufacturing and agriculture with them. You just don't know how to recognize it yet because it's a cheese manufacturer and it's a beer manufacturer and it's a farm to table restaurant. It will look different, but it will manifest the same growth that you're so anxious for. And really this translates to almost any size municipality or government is Quint Studer in his Vibrant Communities book, which is, uh, I think, a wonderful manifesto for all of us to, to grab essentially said that, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and maybe even into the 80s, government was looked to to do the big projects, the big things that were going to be transformational. And he said, that's just not the way it works in today's political environment. And today, it really falls to the private sector to do the cool stuff, to have the cool ideas. And government's role is now to support that because government can't lead, not because they're incapable, but because of the election cycle. So many of these initiatives are going to take more than the term of office. Yeah, And so it just doesn't you know, matter to a lot of elected yeah. officials. They aren't cathedral thinkers like Rick Antonson talks about. They are about their term. Okay, so take that reality. We're not saying it's wrong. But that means that private sector takes that run. And it was interesting. I was talking actually to a mid-sized destination board member recently. And she said to me, she goes, you know, we've been about destination development for the past 10, 15 years. She goes, we can stop now because the private sector is handling that quite nicely. And let's get back to the things that we can have an impact on. And I went, wow. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I have found in rural destinations to be the number one rule above all is that you, and it's, again, it goes back to that, the art of speaking, really, you have to speak in their language first. Yeah. Because any idea, uh, someone said to me, and I don't even know who to attribute this to, they said, people aren't afraid of change. They're afraid of change they can't control. Yeah. And nobody wants to go back to their phone being connected to the wall, but they're afraid that the change is going to happen at them and not through them. And when I speak in front of a rural body of decision makers, I often say something like, this destination is such a gem and it has to be preserved so that the history that is here and the legacy that is in this land is preserved. And the way that we do that without a lot of concrete and asphalt here is that we bring in a visitor economy that you can manage and control. And we let visitors sample the best of why this place is amazing and has been for a hundred years. And they come and they go, but they leave their investment and their money. And that's what you should do and do more of so that you can control the future of your communities. Now, you can see how laced with language that is to mm -hmm. make them feel safe, right? to let them start and believe that they can actually control that change. You know, it's funny, you're talking about uh, plugging your phone into a wall. The things that you do and don't recognize, and I'm in Delta Clubs probably, you know, every couple of weeks, and I was sitting at one of the desks the other day, and I looked up, and there's a phone plug <laughs> on <laughs> the wall. I'm going... Has this club been here this long <laughs> that somebody That's thought funny. it was still a good idea to have a phone plug? So anyway, listen, third question. You're also one of, I think, one of the most articulate voices out there when it comes to destination branding. Love the way that you cut through kind of the clutter. What are communities getting wrong today? Because, I mean, this whole destination branding thing has been going on, you know, probably since the turn of this past century when Destinations International made that shift from IACVB with that big event, and I think it was in 2000 in Boston, where we understood that calling ourselves convention and visitors bureaus confused the hell out of everybody. And all of a sudden, destination branding became the, the thing that we all had to embrace. And it's not quite the same today, but You've got a whole different take on how that whole thing works, and I think one that we all need to uh, kind of get behind. So give us your take. Well, yeah, thank you. I, I um, was excited last year at Advocacy Summit when Jack Johnson said, he said, I'm going to disagree with Maura a little bit that it starts with a visit. I think it starts with a brand. And I, uh, I kind of chuckled because he, he was, I think he was onto something there. And I have been in branding not only on the destination level, but the private business level for almost 20 years. And my little take on it is that I think the misunderstanding of what the word brand, branding, and marketing, the misunderstanding of those three words has held so many businesses and also destinations back from real positive growth. And this happens at probably a 10 or $15 million market cap, because the bigger you get, the more you understand what a brand actually is. And so the core of that misunderstanding, I think, is this, that a brand is an emotional reaction in the heart of a consumer. That's the simplest way to explain a very complex thing. 
-hmm. and that marketing is the way that you are working to guide and shape a consistent emotional reaction in the consumer. Yeah. So that you have put a flag in the ground and said, this is who we are. And I think this is where sometimes destinations and maybe their board or their marketing committee steers something wrong unintentionally, but they steer it wrong is that they're saying, well, we, we are a destination with so many different activities and experiences. We have to say we have something for everyone. For everyone. Yeah. I just something for everyone. Right. Maybe good marketing, quote unquote, it is terrible branding because as travelers and consumers, we are attracted to brands that are super unique. If you go back to uh, Starbucks at the very beginning, they hold true to something I say constantly, which is that the narrower your focus, the broader your appeal. The narrower your focus, the broader your appeal. So the challenge, kind of going back to Famous Destination Marketing, the name of the company, the challenge to be famous is a challenge because it, it holds a risk and a reward. But the challenge to be famous is essentially getting so narrow that 85% of the populace understands a little bit of what you are. They under they have an emotional reaction that's in line with what you want them to have when you say their name. And many times when somebody's looking to do a brand, they pull out the, the yellow pages, right, proverbially. If, if you pulled out the yellow pages and picked 10 companies, or you went on Google or wherever and you found 10 companies that did branding and you brought them in eight out of 10 to nine out of 10 of them are really going to look at that as a logo and a tagline. Yeah. And I'm at the place where I even detest taglines. I think taglines are misunderstood for campaigns and that they lead people down this idea that our tagline is actually carrying weight when it's super generic about explore our outdoors and they're trying to riff off of some name or they're trying to, I think rarely does a tagline actually have a place and that this understanding that it's a logo and a tagline and a good design, that's a part of it, but really it's about getting so narrow. And if you go back to the beginning of Starbucks, they were serving a quirky drink that was European, that maybe you had heard of a cappuccino, likely you had heard of a cappuccino, but that was about it. You really didn't know what a latte was. You didn't know what espresso was. You didn't know the art of pulling a good shot of espresso, but there's a line around the building because they're selling a super bitter coffee that no one's enjoying, but everybody wanted to go in and have a cup of it. So the narrower your focus, the broader your appeal. And so I look at some of the like quintessential brands. I can talk about a couple taglines that I think are brilliant. Certainly Fargo's North of Normal, right? That is so brilliant, but it's speaking to that quirky culture and that fact that you're probably driving pretty far north to get there. Right. Going all the way to one of the greatest in history, which would be what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That was a wink that was a subtle wink to the sure. culture that was there and to what the product was. And so what I am constantly working with destinations to get to is to go beyond the something for everyone to something so narrow that when you are famous for something, I've never been to Branson yet. It's on my list. Um, I've been all over America, but I haven't been to Branson. 
But I kind of assume through Branson's fame that their restaurants and their golf courses and their hotels are good because they're famous. But they have really narrowed down to not say we're a golf destination, uh, we're a foodie destination. They have kind of said this is like that conservative family town. You know, that's my impression of it. So how to narrow that? I know how famous Virginia is for lovers mm-hmm. is, yeah. right? It's an incredibly successful campaign slash tagline. But I don't actually know what that means from a destination standpoint. It's recognizable, and they've won that job of being recognizable. But I don't know what that tells me, the way that north of normal or what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And so my encouragement to destinations is to really work with a branding expert who can help the board, because this is hard. This is hard lift for a board, because there's, there's safety in saying that there is something for everyone that the easiest thing to defend Mm -hmm. is the thing that causes success. And very often in destination marketing, we do the safe thing and we defend the lack of results because it was the safer, something for everyone route. Whereas going and becoming famous and narrow in the mind of the consumer, now everybody has to come sample your flavor of ice cream because you're putting out into the world that you truly have a unique flavor. And everyone wants to come and wear that for a little while. So the challenge and the opportunity to become famous, to become narrower, and to say, we are famous for this thing. And sometimes that means actually just coming back to what you're known for. I had a conversation with somebody, they weren't in the DMO, but they were aware of kind of a controversy in uh, Saratoga. Saratoga, um, New York, where we have the oldest sports venue in the nation, which is the Saratoga racetrack. And it's not on the triple crown, but very often it's the fourth race that the triple crown horse comes to. And they said, well, we can't put a horse on our cover anymore. I mean, for goodness sakes, everyone knows that Saratoga has horses. And I said, okay, well quickly, no, they don't No, No, they absolutely don't. don't know. The whole East Coast is not saturated that you're America's oldest sports venue and a real hollowed ground of a racetrack in, a, in, in what they offer there experientially. I said, but you also are forgetting about the silent recommender. Famous is the silent recommender. So by saying to the East Coast that you have this famous racetrack, you're also silently saying that your restaurants, your hotels, and your yep. golf courses are better. Yep. Just like Branson. And you're losing that. Yeah, there is that, as you said, north of normal, the the quirky. There was an interesting article a number of months ago, maybe even a couple of years ago, where someone was railing against the fact that you really should put your marketing committee out of its misery. Because what they do is they love you and they don't want you to get hurt. And you come in with this wild ass <laughs> idea for a new campaign or a new this or a new that, and they're going to shave down all the edges because uh, you, you might stumble into someplace you don't want to go. And that's the kiss of death. You have to stand out. And, you know, I always look back to those days after Steve Jobs came back to Apple and people were saying, does it bother you that Apple only has a 2% market share? And he smiled and he says, well, so does BMW. Nobody's asking them that question. So it's like, you know, you go for quality in which both of those two did. And that sets you apart. Is it going to 
reduce the number of people who can afford your product? Absolutely. Yes. But the ones who do are going to become, as uh, Guy Kawasaki used to call them, raging thunder lizard evangelists. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, I love Apple's story. They're one of the greatest uh, of doing that, of building a culture and saying we're not for everyone, which just created more magnetism. Um, that kind of, that mm -hmm. you, when you can cookie jar your brand, it's incredible that you make it, oh, we're not for everyone. Well, now everybody wants to line up. Like Nebraska. But I always say, like, what is Apple's tagline? They'll know Nikes, right? Just do it, right? That was legendary. Right. But Apple didn't really have a strong tagline that the market remembered. And that's where I think the one takeaway would be not just narrowing your message down to being famous, but also to understand the difference between a tagline and a campaign, because campaigns are very powerful. I worked with a very, very wild destination that was considering using the campaign 50 shades of green, which I thought, <laughs> I was like, that's, you got to run with that one. And again, it got shaved off by the marketing committee. Right. But um, the idea of a campaign should be clever and awesome and memorable, but they don't necessarily have to find their way up into a tagline. And the two aren't the same thing. A tagline and a campaign aren't the same thing. Yeah. But you got to love what Nebraska did to your point. We're not for everyone. Yeah. And boy, did they get some serious pushback from legislature, from partners, and yet the numbers prove it out yeah. that it absolutely worked. So, hey, we, we could probably go on for hours. I got to get to your bonus round question. We have had some great first job stories on the bonus round over the past 120 some episodes. I can't wait to hear yours because all you told me was your first job was with the septic CIA. The septic CIA. Yes, that was my. You got to tell me. What. It was my entree to really what I do now because it, it it is a story of bad policy and what we had to do to fix bad policy. So when I was late 16, probably 17, by the time I worked, my neighbor was a contractor. And I lived at the foothills of the Catskills. And if you know the Catskills from the famous Dirty Dancing era, yeah. they had all those resorts. But what they also had was thousands of little bungalows. And many of those bungalows were on a huge crop of lakes that are in, uh, in the Catskills. And so you would have these little seasonal bungalows uh, every 80 feet on the, the edge of these small lakes. And in the 40s and 50s and 60s, they built something called cesspools, which were essentially a stacked stone septic tank. And your water would kind of leak out through the gaps of the stacked stones. It was a super inefficient and not a great system. So all of the rules about how you put in a modern day septic system with leaching fields was super necessary. But the problem that this all these lake communities had was that now their, their systems were failing and they go to their town and they're asking to put in a new septic system, but you need a 40 foot by a hundred foot piece of land to put in a leaching field for a septic system. Yeah. And most of these properties may have almost been that size. So it, it wasn't going to happen. So here we are with the great example of policy. The bad thing has to continue because the good thing is not possible. Let, you know, just from a rule standpoint at the uh, county level. So my first job, my boss uh, hired me and we would essentially load up a dump truck with gravel and a trailer with an excavator and all of the, the things and tools that we needed for a mini septic system. 
and we would go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, and we would roll in at 9.30 after anyone who was working from that bungalow during the summer had left for work. And we would roll in at 9.30 a.m., and we would essentially install a septic tank, a mini leach field, drop the tank, hook everything up, pipe it, plumb it, drop our gravel, regrade it, cover it with hay, seed it, and be have to be done by 4.30 before anybody started rolling home. And so I get this job, and not only is there the pressure of having to install a mini septic tank in seven hours, but our boss is like programming his crew. If somebody comes, don't tell them your name. Don't tell them where you live. Don't tell them the name of our company. Talk to no one. You're like, we're in this cloak of secrecy. So I I nicknamed it the septic CIA. And so four days a week, we would head out to these lake communities (laughs) with everything we needed for a seven hour septic install. And he was doing God's work because he was making the water quality better. But what he was doing was highly illegal because he was putting in septics that were not at the size that they had to be legally. And I've, I've always uh, laughed at that because it's so reflective of, you know, sometimes when we hit bad policy, but that is, you know, in this arc of life, this is what I was going to do. I was going to work for this contractor. I built houses for four years uh, with him. This is what I was planning to do with my life. And then I badly dislocated my arm and couldn't lift anything for a while. And I signed up for college the next week and I went off to college. And 20 years later, I uh, look back after graduating and I can't believe that I could have built houses or worked in the visitor economy for 20 years. It's just amazing how life works that way. Isn't it though? Cleo Battle tells a similar story that he was a track star of some repute. And then I forget the injury. But then it was pretty clear his collegiate track career was over and he found a job at a hotel and all of a sudden found Nirvana and, you know, the industry that would be his muse. And and look where he is today. Just simply amazing. Josiah, thank you for cutting through the clutter with your thought leadership. I absolutely can't wait to see where your career takes you next, because as much as New York State is your passion, This world needs some Josiah Brown. Well, I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to come on and share these thoughts and uh, how much you and Terry have uh, really meant to me for the last decade. And uh, what you've done really behind the scenes to help uh, spur my career on has been, uh, I'm so grateful for it. And I I just want to shout you out for that. Well, we love you, man. Thanks a bunch. And that's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers, this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's DMOU.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, our friends at Destinations International. Next up on the events calendar is Marcom, which is the Marketing and Communications Summit, the preeminent gathering place for marketing, communications, and public relations professionals dedicated to helping destination organizations thrive, get inspired, and lift your creativity to a new level in some place truly elevated. And that is Salt Lake City, February 27th through the 29th. Sign up and get notified as soon as registration opens in the events section at destinationsinternational.org. DMOPros.com is where you're going to find links to our services for the DMO sector, links to the Z News, position papers on board diversity and a new model for destination development, the book Destination Leadership, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, plus access to past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. 
Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.